like scary movies? Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You're making popcorn? Uh-huh. What's, what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk, talk to me. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to another episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest goes by the spooky Newfie on his podcast. Please welcome Scott Witten. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Thanks for very much for having me, George. Yes, absolutely my pleasure. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror? For me, man, it's just been like a lifelong love for movies in general, but... Like at the end of the day, the genre like I would always come back to, no matter what, would be the horror genre in general. I mean, I can remember just, honestly, my first movie experience when I was younger, <laughs> going to theaters was probably, I think, Jurassic Park at the age of five. So, I mean, you know, kind of like... That'll scare you. Yeah, that'll scare you, you know? <laughs> kinda get, I remember being on the edge of the seat uh, as I was growing up type of thing. But, um, yeah, you know, it's just kind of coming up in that 90s era going through the what the kids kind of probably miss on nowadays with like the lack of VHS and stuff they kind of appreciate and perusing the movie stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at a young age, I was always, I was given the freedom, luckily by my parents and stuff like that to peruse the horror section and grew up kind of going through like your Freddies and your Jasons and your Hellraisers and your child plays. Then as I got older, probably got a little more acquired, like, you know, got a little bored of the slasher genre and stuff like that, moved into a little more high-end taste. Gave, like, the, the Exorcist a try, you know, The Shining, Texas Chainsaw, blah, 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 stuff like that. But then as I got older, like, I kind of got, you know, I wouldn't say I got bored or anything like that, but I found my taste kind of became more of, like, the existential kind of horror, kind of dread, and kind of basically became to discover, like, things beyond the spooky section can actually kind of, like, freak you out and stuff like right. that. So kind of delved into more artists of, uh, without sounding too pretentious, like, you know, the provocateurs, like your David Lynch's, your Lars von Trier's. Gaspar in a ways is kind of like what really sticks with me nowadays, I can kind of say. But yeah, I mean, otherwise, I'm sure all your guests have kind of been through it over the years and stuff like that. Like, you know, the generic kind of like growing up and stuff. But yeah, nowadays, I just kind of like have a very wide palette in terms of like what I like to kind of explore. Makes a lot of sense. I think it is interesting that as horror fans grow up, you become kind of inured to uh, the violence on screen in a way that it becomes sort of... uh, just set decoration and for things to really scare you now it it needs to get into your core it needs to attack who you are as a person and not just uh your physicality so yeah relatable and that's just the thing right like i found like you know again like growing up you kind of get stuck in like these like certain molds and like ideas of what horror is and it's very stereotypical and again like when you're perusing like your local video stores like we have here in town like your what we call star videos and like jumbo videos and stuff outside of blockbusters when they go over the top with their horror sections again you kind of just like have an idea of what it's supposed to be but then as you get older you know you get a little more adventurous and you start to just kind of explore things outside it and like i said a lot of the influential directors really kind of like had an impact on me over the years i guess you wouldn't even classify as horror directors type of thing right but again you know kind of grows with the times and as you come up through the ranks right definitely is there a specific subgenre that does speak to you more? You know, because it's kind of hard to pin those provocateurs into their own subgenre because they're all such doing so, such unique stuff. Is there like an element of horror where you're like, oh, I love vampires, no matter kind of what's going on around them? Yeah, oddly enough, I never really thought about it until me and my buddy started the show, the Spooky Newbies, and basically, like, I mean, the whole kind of premise of the show is to kind of explore and dive into the various subgenres of the overall experience itself. And I never really realized, but when we started to kind of go through our picks and go through the experiment itself, like 
what really kind of came out to me is that survival horror seems to be kind of my top of the ranks in terms of what I seem to kind of like not so much want to go back to, but also just kind of be drawn to naturally. Like, I mean, whether it's like, I mean, the thing, I mean, you have Midsommar today, which can kind of be classified in the same way. Uh, the Descent, It Follows, I was a huge fan of Funny Games, Alien, Green Room, where when I'm saying these like titles, you wouldn't really classify them all under the same umbrella. But when you kind of like step back and just kind of, you know, pick the bare bones of what the film is doing and what it's trying to achieve, they all kind of land in the same category, right? So, I mean, the generic answer, but when I started, probably I would have said, oh yeah, Supernatural, I love a good fucking spooky house movie type of thing, right? I always appreciate someone like James Wan who can structure tension and suspense and stuff like that with such a simple premise and a setting that we're all used to. But like I said, that's kind of what I kind of came to discover myself. I was like, surprised by that. And then, you know, always being a fan of like John Carpenter in general and just, you know, his whole apocalypse trilogy and stuff like that. It, uh, yeah, it kind of like came to me known. And that seems to be now like unannounced to me <laughs> until we started the show where I seem to be drawn to for the most part. As you mentioned, the movie we're talking about today is Midsommar. Ari Aster's 2019 follow-up to his breakthrough hit, Hereditary. Really just a great ensemble right off the rip. Our primary group features Florence Pugh as Danny, Jack Rayner as Christian, Will Poulter as Mark, William Jackson Harper as Josh, and Wilhelm Blomgren as Pella. Kind of just a remarkable achievement by Ari Aster, even if it was just like a fine movie, to be able to turn around this intensely researched and designed movie just a year after Hereditary comes out in 2018. I mean, we're very lucky that he was getting so much, uh, so much bandwidth here. It's insane. Like, I can't believe kind of like going back and just doing a little bit of research myself that, yeah, it was just flat out 12 months later after Hereditary just like blew up the world in terms of like changing the genre and putting it on his head that he literally had a year painstakingly to put this together where, like you said, you could just see the passion and just the amount of research that must have gone into this. I mean, this wasn't just like some film that was just slapped together last second to kind of get a sophomore effort. I mean, this seemed like something that he had on the back burner for years. And to turn this around in 12 months after such high expectations, after something like Hereditary, it is astounding, really. Yeah, absolutely. But Patrick Anderson and Martin Karlqvist, two Swedish producers, were like, hey, what if you came and made a folk horror movie? So Ari and Swedish set designer Hanrik Svensson dove into research on folk traditions, ultimately writing a 100-page treatment of the Harga world. In fact, the exact setting was chosen because of a site-specific 18th-century legend about a group of young people who danced themselves to death. After having been lured by a man with a black hat and fiery eyes, this legend is, of course, made reference to in the movie leading up to the Maypole dance. Uh, and so that's an actual myth that they were sort of drawing from when they chose the spot of the Harga. I mean, you can see just like from that from itself, like, I mean, like I said, like, whether this was like in the back of his mind or not, it just, it, it just seems like this is something that he wanted to push forward the whole time. It's insane. Yeah. And then this research continued to more niche topics like Viking torture methods and Austrian philosopher Rudolf Steiner, whose anthroposophy movement of evolving spirituality were both espoused and rejected by Nazis over the course of his life, thanks to his opinions on purity. So, you know, there's a lot going on research-wise, a lot that's sort of imbued into it, and he was invited to make a full horror movie. And it is, indeed, often compared to The Wicker Man that's kind of the most well-known example of the subgenre. And it definitely is influential. There's no doubt about it. The horror takes place mostly during the daytime. There's a skewed morality that you see. There's the springing trap of the spider coaxing the fly. But I don't think that it falls as squarely into 
folk horror alone as a lot of people make it out to be. Because, you know, you talk about survival horror. This, to me, does kind of compare to something like Cannibal Holocaust. These travelogue movies that tell you it's a scary world out there and you'll pay a price for your curiosity. You know, it's something that is deliberately cultivated by Aster and his Hungarian costume designer, Andrea Fesch, who rather than lift from one community specifically, made the Harga a stew of European tradition and folklore. You know, there's Elizabethan embroidery, there's Slavic influence on the costumes and everything. It's a lot of different groups sort of put together to create this other that is something supposed to scare people from leaving their home in a way. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's almost like so over the top. It's, it's almost like a fantastical notion, like when they walk into the community itself type of yeah. thing, right? Like, and, and because of that, taking that approach, I think that's the genius of it, like you're saying. Because for the most part, when you fall into these quote-unquote like cult-based horror movies, like at the end of the day, the whole shtick is supposed to be that the wolves pulled over our eyes at this whole time, like, you know, what seemed to be charming and uplifting ended up being this horrific kind of instance, like you said, the Wicker Man. But Ari Aster comes in with a sense, in my opinion, in this movie where we're in on the joke. Like, I mean, unless it's like someone's kind of naive to watching it and stuff like that. The intention I get from watching it, not even just on rewatches, but even like the first one, is that we know the whole time something bad is going to happen here type of thing, right. right? And I think that is the genius of the presentation of it. Is he d- and because he doesn't hold back on the aesthetic and the overwhelming sensation of all these rituals and you know, performances that are going on in the background, even throughout the whole movie, it really does give you this sense of like, all right, when is the shoe going to drop type of thing, right? And that's where the tension builds for me. Definitely. And instead of just using the conflict of one other, right, where it's not just them versus a cult or whatever, it uses this clash of the Harga and our graduate students to embody several clashes. You have modernity versus ancient beliefs, urban versus pastoral, pagan and neo-pagan religions versus Christianity. And then all of these intermingle to more niche conflicts regarding gender, sexuality, class, race, all of the hits. You know, it really does a great job of kind of touching on a a lot of different areas that are naturally evolving facets of the conversation about this sort of conflict between these two groups. Yes, exactly. And I mean, again, it just kind of brings in more in terms of just the fish out of water nature of just like, the most bland, mundane Westerners kind of like walking into this village. They look completely out of place, drab clothing. I mean, everyone that we walk into in the community itself is not only just in a white gown. It's almost like they were bleached white. You couldn't get any brighter. And I mean, you know, just like walking in with just the most mundane thing. They just, again, can't help but feel like they're walking into this almost like fairy tale world type of thing. It's almost, again, too good to be true kind of notion, right? Definitely. I think the movie also does question the ethics of anthropology in an interesting way. Danny is studying to be a psychologist, but interestingly comes the closest to acting as a professional anthropologist. The others break the taboos of the field by disrespecting their studied culture. They desecrate holy sites. They take photos when they were requested not to. They commit academic thievery on each other. Meanwhile, Danny participates in the mundane and ritual activities. She builds relationships and understanding with that group. But this specific example is kind of less just a trap and more kind of a mutual predation. They're looking to absorb and sacrifice these people, while our prototypical tourist and exploitative academic seek their own extracted benefits. 
they're both looking to get something from the other one, and it's kind of like, who's going to get there first? Exactly. And it, exactly. It's almost like the back of what, and then they try to make it, they do such a good job to, of selling Christian, and you know what I mean? Like, and, and Josh and Mark and all them coming in, they think the whole time that they have the one up. They think, like, they're the higher up. They paint the, the, these, like, almost like cartoonish portraits of these neckbeard kind of, like, university students where they think they have everything figured out about themselves instead of this secluded community that doesn't know anything better about the world itself type of thing. And they think them coming in have everything figured out. And like you said, almost like not so much scoff at things, but it's a sense of, like you said, it's just they so blatantly want to just exploit what they have and take credit almost for their, you know, culture as, as self as large type of thing. Right. What the irony is of what you're saying about Danny is she's the only one where it's like, you know, there is somewhat of an exploited nature of like what she's trying to get at the end of the day with all this. But She's the only one actually ingraining herself, experiencing what it is, going and she's cooking with the females. She's taking parts in the rituals. While every, all the other comers on, like Christian and stuff like that, they're the ones who are just not really participating in anything, but they also assume they know everything's the best of before they even try, right? Definitely. So often they're just sitting on the side. Mark even sleeps through the at stupa. You know, a, a lot of this sort of not actually in, enmeshing themselves in it for sure. There's also a quote from Ari in an interview with Nightmarish Conjurings that I think will inform a lot of our discussion. He said, There are politics woven into the periphery of the film. We're talking about contemporary Sweden. We're talking about Swedish history, especially during the Second World War and European history in general. And America is not exempt from the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm reluctant to expand too much further, but there is stuff to say about racism and xenophobia. Even if you look at the visitors and how they're used or not used, how they're either discarded or used before being discarded, there is intention behind even the casting of our visitors. And even on the most surface level, having Josh, a black man, studying an all-white insular group inverts typical colonialist anthropology. You know, it's another jab at these white supremacist elements that are interwoven through the field and also the movie to, quote, juxtapose Sweden's bright white prosperity and order with an underbelly of cruel violence. Um, so I just thought that was a, a good quote from Ari to sort of set up the discussion. Right, and it's actually a really good point. You mentioned the xenophobia aspect of it as well. Like, literally this time around, like what hit me is almost like the commune itself is almost experiencing what's like a reverse xenophobia, where they're almost too welcoming. Again, creating that sense of just like, you know, like, what am I missing here? Like, why are you guys so wanting us to be part of, you know, the festivities here? Like, what am I missing? It's almost like you're too friendly, too good to be true kind of notion. Which, again, kind of like the irony of it all is how friendly they are is what's kind of creepy and off-putting about everything at the end of the day, right? Definitely. As we work through the plot of the movie, we are going to be talking about the theatrical version but I did watch the director's cut in preparation for today, and I just want to say up front, I think a lot of the Josh stuff in particular was expanded upon in a really good way. You see some more, like, microaggressions and stuff that just make you feel uncomfortable. Josh is more knowledgeable about the dark side of the traditions that they're experiencing. These things are still in the movie, but in the expanded version, I just felt it made the racial awareness of the movie more coherent. Right. Uh, so that's my basic thoughts on the difference. I thought Christian's story kind of taints the experiment a little bit for Christian and that he is too much of a shithead <laughs> in the <laughs> expanded one. But Josh's stuff, I thought they did a really good job with in the expanded one. 
Now, this does tie to some of the portentous images that come up in the movie. We'll get to some of the paintings as they come up, for example. But specifically, we see early on that Josh has been reading The Secret Nazi Language of the Uthark, a fake book about a real thing, the Nazi association with these runes. And it does help him to recognize the implication of the entrenched values of these roots that they are so thoroughly celebrating and honoring. This then connects to the deliberate inauthenticity that Ari had with the Harga. You know, is this actually tradition for them? Or are they like real modern white supremacists who nostalgically appropriate the symbols that they feel suits them? The Atestupa and the Blood Eagle both come from now factually disregarded Icelandic legends, and the love magic comes from 17th century Italy. It feels as uninterested in adhering to reality as folktales themselves, like you mentioned. It's more about communicating a story or a warning, in this case, about sort of the negative side of being drawn into these ethnic enclaves and having somebody, having the only people willing to support someone be also heinous racist. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) And one thing I find really interesting about the way that the movie itself handles these moments, like with the book or the paintings, is that ordinarily a director might cut to these in close-up. And they would ensure that the visual prominence clarifies the narrative importance, right? But Ari, just instead of relegating background visuals to the simple task of atmosphere, he adorns them with items that don't necessarily trumpet their importance, but are important. I think that this draws an interesting through line from it to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is another movie that kind of does this in an interesting way. The furniture made from humans, like the bone sofa and the face lampshade, are never foregrounded. The camera's never like, whoa, look at how fucking crazy and creepy this is. It's something there for you to stumble across in horror and to jolt you. And I think that Ari does a really great job with that in this movie. Yeah, and I mean, again, it kind of come back to what I was saying earlier, too. Like, I mean, besides the set dressing itself, like... The constant just like whether they're tiny acts or little kind of dances or little flourishes or some kind of performance going on in the background, like it's almost like overwhelming on the senses. And you kind of feel even like I said, on first viewing it, it's like a couple of years ago. It's just the idea that like it kind of like diverts you and you're trying to think like, am I supposed to be paying attention to this in the background? And as we kind of come to know is that like the majority of what we are seeing is kind of painting the picture for the fate of the, the team here. At the yeah. end of the movie, unfortunately, which is kind of ironic enough, because we as the audience are experiencing this when we know their fate is right in front of them. But at the beginning of the movie, we're shown this kind of quilt, this art piece, which essentially is the same thing, where it's mm-hmm. painting the entire picture of the movie that we're about to watch and experience up front. And it's not afraid to tell us that. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, you know, leading us there. But and that's, again, kind of part of the fear of it all type of thing. It's almost like the inevitability of it all. Right. Yeah. And I think horror kind of does this manipulation of space in a really unique way. Like, you think about what maybe action comes close a little bit sometimes, but using utilizing, like, the edge of frame, blurry backgrounds, edits that emphasize action is not something that a lot of other genres not only do do, but can do. Because horror is such an empathy-demanding vehicle, 
you are the one who is experiencing the visuals, right? In a way that isn't necessarily the case, I feel like, in a comedy or a drama. It just it utilizes your own being sucked into the movie to utilize space in a way that's scary. Yeah, and it's like the it sounds like a weird comparison, but again, like the kind of horror that again, this is not a jump scare movie. You know what I mean? It is kind of going towards of what I said. I've kind of been drawn to as I get older this existential kind of horror, this dread, this tone, a certain tone that's set for me is always like, and it's always the aesthetic choice as well. What really kind of makes me interested in movies like this. But, and again, it might sound weird for someone to kind of like, you know, compare it like this, but the fear of this and the kind of impending dread, it's almost like the whole movie, you're on a roller coaster that you can't get off and it's going up and up and up and up and you know it's going to drop. And like, again, like that's kind of like the impending pit in your stomach kind of feeling this movie's giving you, right? Mm Mm-hmm. There's also, I think, an interesting thing that Ari does with objectification. It is both interesting and horrifying to me because- you feel as drugged out as our group of visitors. You know, you see flowers dilating and contracting like a breathing animal. They're reacting to stimulus. At the same time, he drives humanity towards thing status with shots from above that flatten our humanness into animated patterns like dancing around the maypole or objects like the foot sticking out of the ground. I read some interesting thoughts from Robert Spadoni that discuss the way all film does this. It imbues objects with a mystique and a sort of unlife just from like a close-up on a cup. You go, oh, what has happened to this cup? Like, why am I focusing on this? Versus with humanity, it's free to dwell on individual body parts and give them expressive power that doesn't happen in interpersonal communication or like in a stage production. You know, you're looking at the person as a whole. You're not going, okay, wow, look at this hand. What does this hand symbolize? Like, it cuts a person up into objects. And Midsommar, I think, pushes this to the extreme with the way that it sort of frames humanity versus the living nature of nature and the flowers and stuff. It it meets them in the middle. I mean, near the end of the movie, like, Ariasra has us so exhausted to the point we're literally like Christian at a table where we, he just turns to the person next to him and says, what is going on? Like, where, where is this leading to? Because again, it's so brilliant. It's almost like a fourth wall breaking moment, but it's not. But at the end of the day, it's just again, like on first viewing, that's such a brilliant choice because you, you as the audience are like, where are we going with this? What, what, what is the end result of all this you're putting us through? And like you said, it's, it's on the faces of Danny and Christian at that point, how worn out, strung out they almost are at that rate, right? And yeah. it's terrifying knowing that everyone around them seemed to know the answer. And to me, there's nothing scarier than that. Almost like <laughs> being in a bad dream, you know? I mean, kind of coming back to feelings of bad dreams, like uh, Bo is Afraid has the same kind of tonal sense, where you're on the adventure of like almost like, in that case, an unreliable narrator. But it's this nonsensical like you know frame of mind where it feels like you're in this bad dream where again when you're in a bad dream everyone around you seems to know an answer but you don't and to me there's nothing scarier to that even as you get older regardless of if you're a child or not and again i think they completely capture that by the end of this movie and again just keeps you on pins and needles the entire time right it also leverages horror through this objectification because things take on that new meaning you know you see the foot specifically it's not it's it takes on a meaning of dread that it's not usually associated with. 
it sort of recalls its former life as a foot <laughs> uh, in a way that makes the present status as a severed foot sticking out of the ground more terrible to behold. We, right. as a viewer, are trying to assimilate our understanding of what a foot is with this new life that it has, and it it resists, it insists upon its its thingness. And I just thought that they do such an interesting job with that. Just a, kind of an interesting concept in general. It kind of comes back to the choice, too, of like Arias or in general with this film. Like, I find the restraint he actually has with us not seeing what happens to a lot of these people throughout the movie scarier than ever. Because it's like you mm -hmm. said, it's like, Besides us trying to put together the pieces of like what this culture is all about, what these different festivities mean, what certain symbols mean, what certain choices at the table mean, it, it's the same way where it's like we're trying to put the pieces together with that, making us feel lost as the audience. But then when we come across these horrific acts, clearly, you're mm -hmm. right. What's scarier is to think about like, A, how many people participated in this? How, what other ritualistic parts happened, for, for instance, like you say, Mark? And then and it's just kind of like, that's the scarier notion of it. Perfect example of less showing less type of thing, yeah, right? Definitely. One final thematic element that I want to preface our conversation with is communication. There is a lot of talk about our digital interactions eroding intimacy, dehumanizing others to just the bits that you find useful, much like the, the film did with the body parts. And this further sliding of humanity towards objects, as we discussed just before, works in tandem with the nostalgia for a screenless life, like the ones that the Hargo lead. And you can really see it in the opening of the movie. You know, people often ignore this opening as simply setting up the contrast with the look of the Hargo community. But it does create another contrast as well, which is that of a mediated and alienated existence in Western society versus the direct collective relationships of the Hargo. Danny is constantly lit by the glow of screens, and our frozen and disembodied text that represents her sister, and by extension us, you know, there's no doubt that the performative nature of social media can exacerbate issues that people are having, and don't necessarily facilitate real connection in a way that it might seem like it would on the surface. And these facilitate a lack of real communication, in fact, in a lot of ways. You see it over and over again in the relationship between Danny and Christian, and it does manifest beyond the screens, considering how often we're only seeing a reflection of Christian. I thought that was really interesting at the yeah. beginning. He's shown in the mirror a lot because he is still just mediated. He's not really there. But it's not exclusively between them either. For example, Danny's emails are unopened on her sister's computer. And if she had gone to get some FaceTime, she might have been able to stop things. And I think that part of her trauma is instinctively feeling this. And it further connects to our repression of real emotion, which is clearly agonizing to Danny across the whole movie as she follows these Western attitudes about sex and grief. And it's so disparate from the Harga participating collectively through mimicry with both Maya's cries of pleasure and Danny's sobs of panic in tandem, you know, you can see how someone who does feel alienated in a digital world might be like, I long for the days of these face-to-face -face connections and the slippery slope of, like, of isolating yourself behind just digital stuff. Yeah. You know, if you're not actually getting out there and talking to people, it's very easy for people to 
take advantage of you in some ways. And I think that that is sort of the white nationalist fear that Ari is playing with here. And I mean, you can just see like through the brilliant performance of Pew in this movie in general, like it's like you said, it's kind of coming back ironically enough to the fact like there is clearly a contrast of what you said they wanted to set up in the first 10 minutes or so before they get over to Sweden and the commune itself. But the biggest thing is what you're nailing here is just you can see without them really shoving it down your throat that Danny's character is so used to communicating through text, through screens and not being face to face with people and stuff like that. Ironically enough, because she's like focusing on psychology. But it's the fact that what you're saying, soon as she walks into the community, like she you could tell she's kind of uncomfortable about just being touched and like you know, draped with, like, these gowns and people asking her how she is and, like, you know what I mean, like, hugging her. And you can see that she is physically taken back. Not so much uncomfortable, but just not really sure on how to, like, react to these things half the time. And then you also see, too, like, every time she needs to be expressive or be upset, what does she do? Every single time she gets away from everyone because she feels like it's almost a burden on people for her to actually express how she feels, right? So that's why the scene, in my opinion, with her and Pele, which we'll discuss like a little later, and, and she's just trying to just be upset and trying to express things. She's not used to someone clinging to her and telling her, just tell me how you feel, like, like let it out type of thing. Yeah. And she just does such a brilliant job of just not really knowing how to do it, or they, it's almost like a child type of thing, right? And yeah, no, I think you, you hit the nail on the head with that, and that is a very important factor to, to, like, to consider with all this, but again, it's not like being just like shoved down your throat, like it's a very subtle way of going about it, but it's another great way, besides the visuals itself, to contrast Western versus Eastern culture type of thing, right? The movie had a $9 million budget. It released January 3rd, 2019, a week after actual Midsummer, and it made $48 million. Uh, it did have a little bit of a mixed reception because it's very different from Hereditary, and it has a lot of stuff going on, and it is ambiguous in the way that it ends, and complex in its ethics and a lot of people have difficulty saying that the movie does not necessarily reflect the creator's own ethics but is more commenting on them not everybody liked it i think it's the best horror movie ever made for this week i do genuinely really like it i was talking this weekend because uh i rewatched all the ari aster movies or I watched Bo is Afraid for the first time, I should say. Oh, okay. The other two I was rewatching, and uh, I just really have a tough time choosing between this and Hereditary. I think that they're both so great and such different accomplishments that it really is kind of remarkable for him to have two of these kind of masterpieces so early in his career. It's an, and just like you said, just so one after the other. And they're so completely different aesthetically, and also too just like thematically, and just like where he's trying to go and how he's treating horror. Because I'm glad you kind of like kind of brought up just the other movies in general, because I was going to candidly ask you before we got into it, like, uh, just your honest opinion, like, what would you prefer in terms of the two movies? Like, I mean, because there is, I, I find for the most part, I don't come across people who hate both movies, but there is always a clear cut answer in terms of who prefers what. Mm-hmm. And my opinion would always be on the two films is that Hereditary is the scarier film, mm-hmm. but I believe Midsommar is the better film. Is what it comes down to. I find that as a writer, Ari Aster, and I, he kind of even happens a bit, in my opinion, Bo is afraid. He has a bit of trouble sometimes with the third act and really reining in what he's really trying to say because he has so much going on throughout the films themselves, and he's mm. so ambitious, and he has so many like outlandish ideas that sometimes he has a little trouble kind of like consolidating it all at the end of the day. 
But I find the most beautiful through line of any of the scripts so far is Midsommar. Like, right down to the last shot, I know exactly what he's trying to say. And it just it's a perfect example of just mission complete. Like, you just completely just nailed the whole point of this movie from opening scene to closing. Yeah, I think that is a good point. I Like I said, I do struggle choosing, but I, if I... I think that Midsummer is a more interesting story to me, but it doesn't necessarily have the flash of the roles that Hereditary has. Right. You know, Tony Collette rightfully gets an insane amount of praise for that movie, but watching it again last night, I'm just like, why is Alex Wolf not in a million movies? I right know, now? exactly. It's it's so funny you mentioned that. Like literally on first viewing, again, like I feel like I fell in that as well. I was so overwhelmed and taken back by her performance. Because I mean it was hyped up before I even saw it. So like I kind of knew what I was getting into anyways. But yeah, I totally agree. Every time I rewatch Hereditary, I'm like, where's Alex Wolf's praise? Like he is brilliant and he's mm-hmm. the anchor of the whole movie. Because you need because some people say it's like, I guess you're so distracted by the cartoonishness and the flair and the, just the crazy nature of her performance. I mean, it is fantastic and it's just something to behold. Yeah. But you need that groundedness of his kind of mundanity in it to really sell it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, and I just so underappreciated my first viewings as to like my last one, which was just last week, and just how much he really does commit and put into it type of thing. And like, you just weird like the wearing down of that cult specifically with you know spoiler warnings or anything like that for this movie for this podcast but i mean he is just a mess at the end of it and you just forget how believable it is again like because you can kind of focus on other things and other viewings you're not so distracted by like what is actually happening like when you're aware of how the movie plays out you can focus on like the more nitty-gritty and again i think he is the unsung hero of that movie totally He's great in Pig. He's great in Old. He's great in Hereditary. Get this guy in some more one-word titles. (laughs) So let's get into the actual movie itself now. As you mentioned, it does open with this giant mural, reminiscent of a dolmening is the phrase that I found. That is this specifically uh, wallpaper painting, like we see like that in the Harga village. And it does depict the whole story. We see Danny and her connections to her family severed by death leaving her in the winter of emotion. Christian tries to comfort her while still at arm's length. Of note that their city is walled off from the field in this image, breaking that sort of nature versus urban conflict right there. Pele watches from above, then Pied Pipers them through the portal to Hargaland, where several skeletons dance around the maypole with Danny dressed as one of the residents while a fucked up sun brings growth. (laughs) The scariest thing in this whole movie is that sun, man. His face is weird. Is this a common, like, is this kind of just, again, just a kind of a loose representation of, like, what the culture would be? But is this actually, like, said to be, like, a cultural, like, relevance type of thing? Like, these, like, paint? Yeah, it's definitely taking, like, Swedish folk art and filtering it through their own interpretations. It does sort of uh, play with that dalmaling. But also, like, yeah, it's just kind of got, like, a tapestry vibe, which was huge in English culture and stuff. You know, it... It is kind of blending a lot of stuff together. Right. Instead of just being like a pastoral nature vibe, you know, they used a lot of horses, I saw, was one of the big tenets of a Dalmaling, so. The bear is represented too, but more importantly, are the elderly falling off the cliff. And one thing I thought was interesting is that they have wings in this painting, which makes them look kind of like fallen angels, sort of Luciferian temptation 
uh, element that, you know, maybe there's something going on between that and Pele luring them. There is sort of this don't be tempted by the apple kind of vibe. <laughs> right, right. After this unrolls, though, like a stage show, we enter the bleak, barren snowscape. It is a lot of beautiful nature, but it is also oppressive. And you cut to civilization because a ringing phone in the one dark house there, uh, the Ardor residence, don't pick up for their daughter, Danny. She got an email from her sister, Terry, that says, Dear Danny, I can't anymore. Everything's black. Mom and dad are coming too. Goodbye. A weird email to get at the best of times. But Ma and Pa have been arguing with Terry. And now Terry isn't answering. So just call me back when you get a chance, please. And, you know, you you sort of touched on this, the physical nature of Florence's performance here. I think that she does such a great job because you can see how torn she is about what she has to do, not just here, although it is certainly demonstrated here, but across the entire movie. She is of two minds the entire time. Should I even be here? Was I even really invited on this trip? You know, all of these things that that have her split in half. She doesn't want to seem crazy and overreact, but nobody is answering after calling every line possible. You get this email, you start, maybe it's time to overreact a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the thing is, like you said, it's like a, the dual nature of like her performance in this is that it's the fact that like it's this character where like I'm sure on the page it doesn't scream like Tony Collette's character in Hereditary to like, like put that X factor in, but you can just tell Pew just like hauls so much out of this in terms of like what she had to do and like the, the simple situations where like if you read it out loud it doesn't seem like to be too impactful but she really just puts the simple conversation she's having literally text back and forth with Christian you can just it, feel the emotion exuding from her even before we find out unfortunately what happens she tries calling Christian a second time and he does pick up and you see her trying to play it cool she's like hey what are you up to he says he just smoked some resin now they're going to get some pizza. <laughs> he doesn't sound too enthusiastic about hanging out, but I should be able to swing by. He's also not too happy the sister situation hasn't resolved itself yet, as he calls it. He says, it's just another obvious ploy for attention, like every other panic attack she gives you. She says, you're right, I just needed to be reminded, I'm very lucky to have you. Wrong. Uh, they also say they love each other before hanging up, although his is not until after a very deep sigh. So they yeah. make very clear very quickly that he is not exactly the model boyfriend. No, and I mean, honestly, there's something about it, too, especially on this viewing. Like, the, his, the choice of the, his tone on that phone call is so specific, and mm-hmm. I find it's just so kind of like, because we don't know who Christian is at that point, like he sounds like, oh, this seems like a nice fella type of thing. I guess like he's supportive. But then, like as the conversation progresses, it's like you said, it's just like, no, he just doesn't give a shit about this at all. He just wants. You can tell he's looking at his watch to kind of end this as fast as possible. And just meanwhile, Danny is trying to experience like you know, like one of the most traumatic, like, soon to be the most traumatic instance in her life type of thing. Yeah. And you again, you just feel no sense of sympathy from him. I guess, and again, like. As his friends and stuff like do try to like wind down on it's like it's like it's all oh poor you poor Christian you're dealing with all this this is something that's on your back and like type of thing when you're yeah. not even thinking of poor Danny what she's going through right she's the one quote unquote overreacting all the time yeah and even if Christian were the best boyfriend in the world up to this point and he said like I don't think that you should pursue this I think you should relax. It would be pretty understandable why, in addition to the self-loathing that develops, that she might resent Christian for this. Exactly. And so, 
In the meantime, she's just looking for any kind of support, and hearing the tone in his voice calls a friend to now fret about a possible breakup on top of uh, this worry. So she says, while tossing back an Ativan, that she's worried about leaning on him too much. What if I'm scaring him off? I've never even seen him cry. And the friend is the voice of reason. If having you open up is a chore, then he's not the right guy. But Danny is unconvinced. Yeah, I mean, it's just so clearly setting up this dynamic of of being so repressed versus almost shockingly explicit in your emotions with uh, the Harga. So, And just her ability to, like, I mean, again, we'll find out with the exploitation later of, like, the commune and just Paley in general taking advantage of her vulnerability, clearly, like, later in the movie. But we just get a sense right from jump that, Danny is willing to do anything to not be alone is what it comes yeah. down to. Right. And I mean, again, like without painting any crazy picture, we're never really given any sprawling notion of like what her family life was like. I mean, obviously besides like we're able to put two and two together in terms of what's going on with her sister and stuff like that. But I mean, right. we're never really pan out in terms of how she's growing up, but we're, give, we're just insinuated the fact that, you know, clearly she was leaned on a lot throughout her life. And you know, clearly she all she does is spend her time in thinking of others and not enough time thinking of herself. So that's why she's always making excuses for other people. And it's always like, you know, self-impending like problems that she's saying, like, oh, it's just me overreacting or it's like, oh, I'm overthinking this or I'm pushing him away. You know what I mean? Instead of the friend, like you said, who is a voice of reason being like, you know what? You should probably think more of yourself type of thing. Right. Definitely. And we talked about how in the extended version it kind of taints the sample pool here a little bit because as we see christian in these opening scenes he is explicitly like gaslighting at one point like i know this is it's the phrase has sort of lost some of its meaning over the past couple years but in the most true sense of the word he is like oh i wasn't hiding it from you i told you about me wanting to go to this like right right he is literally convincing her that she is crazy for feeling the way that she is feeling that she's not she's right to feel this way yeah and and because she needs to just have somebody there she feels that fear of isolation she she allows christian to walk all over her set exactly and i mean it's like you said it comes like really prevalent as well like in the scene when they're like after she found out they're going to sweden and then like there's that silence where they're going and they go back to the apartment after the party same kind of notion where it's like she has every right to be to just let it out on him and just be like you know what the fuck dude i can right. it's in right? two weeks you have a ticket already and he's yeah. like oh, we we're thinking about going <laughs> yeah and i mean and again like he just flips it on her and he, you could tell from their relationship experience that he's just so used to just making her feel like the bad guy you know what i mean and like you said quote unquote i know it's heavily used but gaslighting her and i mean he just knows how to play her like a fiddle type of thing right without with immediately shifting the guilt to her and she didn't do anything wrong <laughs> yeah later on he uh, in the extended this is another cut scene but he's like th- they have a big fight after there's like a, a fake drowning and they he he's like you whenever you do a nice thing for me I feel trapped because I now need to do something nice for you. <laughs> and she's like, she's like, what? what the fuck are you talking about? That's crazy. And and he's like, you demand reciprocation. And it's like, that's a relationship, my yeah. dude. <laughs> like, it's just, it's, it's intense stuff. And Christian is a, a very bad dude, but it's made much more clear in the, uh, 
in the expanded version for sure. Yeah, and that's what I remember. Like I said, I saw I've only seen the extended version once, um, a little over a year ago, and that's what I remember when we were kind of talking off mic in terms of which version to watch. I do remember the extensively that the additional footage paid a lot and beefed out a lot of stuff between Danny and Christian, from what I remember. And like you mm-hmm. said, even just like Josh and like the Oracle, I think was a little more prevalent in it as well. But it's serious. It's it's like what I've come to find out on watching it a little over and over again is like I kind of like the ambiguity of a lot of this. Like I like how we can kind of fill in our own little gaps on whether it's the lore in the village, whether it's like you said the background of these characters and stuff. Because there's so much going on, it's nice to kind of just like fill these gaps ourselves without being kind of spoon fed certain things. If that makes sense. Sure. Also, the unextended version is still two and a half hours. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Christian's friends and fellow graduate students, however, are all trying to convince him to actually break up with her instead of fence-sitting like he has for about a year now. He's been thinking about breaking up with her, um, especially with a trip to Sweden coming up to visit Pele's home. Of ominous note looking back is Pele's first line here to Christian, and don't forget about all the Swedish women you can impregnate in June. Josh asks if he's torturing himself with this as a way to put off his PhD prospectus, which is insightful. And Mark says these calls are a form of abuse, as another one from Danny comes just a few minutes later, which is less insightful. (laughs) (laughs) Mark is just fucking worse. As soon as Christian picks up, though, he hears intense sobbing, because it turns out Terry went for a murder-suicide via carbon monoxide poisoning, and now Danny's whole family is dead. Very intense scene as we go through the house and we see the aftermath. There's this awful, awful zoom in on Terry herself. She has the hose duct taped to her mouth. There's vomit all over her shirt, glassy eyes. She's slumped against her desk. It also, I think, does connect to the shared pain element. Terry felt that her family was not supporting. They did not feel her pain. And so she forced them to, basically. She pushed back against this Western emphasis on self-reliance. And said, I cannot bear this pain alone, and so you're going to bear it now with me, too. Right. Again, without it being kind of spoon-fed to you, and we don't really know what Danny and her relationship was, we get the idea that she leaned on Danny a lot, and she probably picked up a lot of the slack to help out with this with her. But, I mean, you know, can we interpret that where it's like, you know, maybe she feels the most pain she can put towards Danny is to have her experience, have all of her family taken away from her type of thing, rather than her being part of the actual, you know, unfortunate scene itself, right? Yeah. Christian finally arrives at Danny's, and you can hear her from outside, deep racking, weeping as the snow falls. We see our first interesting painting there as well, called Yeren Leaping Forward. It's a Neanderthalic woman running through the forest, holding a baby version of herself, and being attacked by human-headed dogs that seem to have already taken down two others of her kind. Seems to kind of reference the self-destruction of humanity by humanity, is sort of what I'm taking from it. Right. She also has a painting of a princess kissing a bear above her bed, which is a lot easier to interpret. (laughs) Nice bit of foreshadowing there. It's mere days later, and Christian is ready to go out partying again as finals come to a close. Danny comes with him and kind of disassociates there. Everything is muted to her until she hears the gang talking about this trip to Sweden happening in two weeks. And I love her just response is just, oh, yeah? (laughs) (laughs) Again, that's what's so brilliant about the choice of Ariaster. Even just as simple as that scene is, like the whole time we're just gradually zooming in on Danny and we're just seeing what's kind of like going on. And she's probably kind of floating elsewhere in her head, just thinking about other things. And in the periphery, 
we're hearing this conversation between Mark, Josh, and Christian, and Paley, and all of them talking about this. Right. And then all of a sudden, it just, like, clicks in her head, like, wait, what? <laughs> wait. What, what the fuck's going on? Christian, why haven't I heard about this? And then, he, of course, he gives a side eye of, like, oh, God, here it comes type of thing, right? And you can tell it's all that you can see the mechanics all of a sudden whirling in his head about how he can spin this type of deal, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is when they return home. They have this big blowout scene. He trots out all the classics. Uh, I said sorry. It's not that big a deal. I told you I wanted to go. And when he threatens to go home, she panics and retreats. And we see, oh, I don't need an apology. I just want to talk about it, not attack you. And actually, I'm sorry. It's hard to watch, honestly. It is. is. Very painful. During this fight, there's another painting behind them of a large fish dinosaur being swarmed and torn apart by tinier versions, similar to Yaren leaping forward. It's It really is setting up this sort of self-devouring humanity uh, theme here. It is also wor- – I think it's worth noting that Christian, in addition to just being a shitty boyfriend, is completely unmoored. He has no passions. He doesn't know what his thesis is. He doesn't even know what he wants out of He's not even positive. He wants out of the relationship. He's like, exactly. what if I break up with her and then I want her back? Like, he cannot decide. And when she suggests that the trip might inspire something, he is, seems incredibly embarrassed yeah. by this. Like, to be seen as weak in any capacity. It's so true. I never really thought about that. It's just like he is this aimless lump of a human being. <laughs> where, and he just feels, again, like it's always something else's kind of fault or problem. And he just kind of just going with the flow kind of mentality. He has no inspirations. He has no real plans of anything. And then as we'll come to discover later, what he decides to do for his thesis is a complete theft from one of his closest friends. Yeah. And we see the invitation happen in the extended version. But in the theatrical version, he springs upon the gang... By the way, I invited Danny, so things weren't weird, but she's not coming. I mean, I invited her, and she accepted, but she's not coming. <laughs> and he, also, here she is now, and I told her that you told me to invite her and know that she's coming. Which, shitty friend now, on top of shitty boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, and the one thing I really took notice of this time around in this specific scene as well, which I think you mentioned it earlier in terms of like the way this is framed with the mirror in the background... Uh, is specifically Pele's face when he's telling them that Danny's coming. You can see that he's just kind of like, oh, wow, I can make this. This is going to completely work to my advantage type of thing, right? Not only am I bringing you folks, I think I've got another element to this that can be good for the commune itself. And immediately he kicks into gear of sinking his hooks into Danny. Yeah, I also thought it was really interesting that Christian plays the grief card to, like, get out of them being mad about this. (laughs) And it's like, wow, dude. Really, truly wow. <laughs> wow. You've really topped yourself here, my man. Yeah. He gets dragged away by Mark, the most anti-Danny of the friends. So she makes small talk with Pele, the Swede whose home they'll be visiting for a nine-day festival centered around the solstice. And he does show her some of the pageantry, including last year's May Queen. But when he mentions her family, even in sympathy, she has to run to the bathroom to cry barely holding it together that long. Also a really slick transition yeah. as it becomes the airplane bathroom she's retreating to for a quick sob sesh that she tries desperately to restrain. Just, it communicates, first of all, it communicates the intensity and frequency of these emotions, but also it just looks really fucking good. Yeah, it's just a smooth transition. And I love the lack of like, 
Because, I mean, like you said, for a two-and-a-half-hour-long movie, you think they'd almost even drag out the process more of getting there at the end of the day. I love that they don't kind of, like, waste our time with this, and we're just, like, literally snap-bang, brought right to the commune. There's no kind of dilly-dallying or whatever, because I could see that being a, probably a little more of a dragged-out process itself, but very smart choice, I think, on his end to do that. Yeah, I also really like that as they come in for landing, there's turbulence, but... It's not really communicated if it's real turbulence or if it's just, like, the Dang, camera shaking yeah. and, like, her fear and everything. Really good stuff. And when they land, Mark goes gaga over some women standing on the curb. And he asks, what is it that makes them hotter here? Now, beyond the book that we saw, Josh makes explicit reference to the violence in their ethnic enclave's existence from saying that they kidnapped the best babes and dragged them over. So at their core, in their history, there is violence seething. Yeah. And again, just the beginning of all these nuances of like, you know what you're getting into here, right? <laughs> like, I mean, right. I like, like are you, you're literally doing your thesis on this. Like, are you aware of what you're about to walk into type of thing, right? And it just, again, just over their head. And the irony of it all, too, is like, they do such a good job of, again, of setting up these characters where they think they know everything. But at the end of the day, they're the ones going to be fooled. They're the ones being exploited here at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Uh, One little four-hour drive later, they arrive at Halsingland, passing under a banner that reinforces the racism of the area that they're entering. It says, stop mass immigration into Halsingland. Vote for a free north in the fall. They stop in a field, though, which I find this field section really interesting. It's kind of this liminal space between reality and the world of the Harga that they'll need to pass into, especially since there is the entrance is very portal-shaped. Yes. And so it really feels like this is like the antechamber that they have to like decompress in. It's almost like the way station of like, all right, we're getting ready to kind of go in here. Here's a little taste test of what we're about to kind of experience going forward type of thing, right? Right. And Pele introduces them to a gaggle of other young people from the village who are all returning from a trip outside. For example, Pele's brother Ingmar is there, and he brought two people from London, Connie and Simon. And Ingmar busts out the mushrooms, which they're all about to take, but Danny's a little hesitant. She wants to find her footing in the new country first, understandable. Christian offers to wait with her, and you're like, oh, that's actually kind of nice of you to do that, until he promptly throws her under the bus to the other guys. (laughs) immediately you're like well you're gonna be a buzzkill i mean if you're, you know i guess i'll have to wait with you but you know it'll ruin everything for everyone else immediately right. guilt tripping her type of thing right yeah very awkward so much so that she actually agrees to just do them now to break the silence mm-hmm. <laughs> probably a good way to set up a trip right <laughs> yeah probably a good way to jump into this right head first yeah think happy thoughts says pele <laughs> mark freaks out about the midnight sun which i can definitely relate to anything that's like paradigm shattering is not good when you're high <laughs> like you're like it's 9 p.m and it's bright sun <laughs> disconcerting to say the least <laughs> this also appears when they, they say oh fuck it's a new person and pele again notably looking back says new people are good mark wow wow and i mean the one good thing too is i think you've already made notion of this as well earlier on like when it comes down to the, the use of these hallucinogenic drugs they do such a good job of just, like, I don't know, keep it as simplistic. Like, they don't hallucinate and see, like, some elephant dancing over in the field and stuff like (laughs) that. It's just this sense of, like, movement and breathing from nature and stuff. It's pulsing and just swirling and just, 
I mean, even like people might think like the grass kind of growing out of Danny's hand and stuff like that might be a bit much, but I mean, they just do such a naturalistic job of it. And you just like, you can feel it's like a vibe is what they're giving off type of thing. And I think it's such a good real representation on film of it without being too much. Yeah. Also, I think that Pele like sets it up. Uh, he, yeah. he talks about, can you feel that? The energy coming up from the earth. She's set up to feel one with nature. And you, so you see this grass growing through her hand. Very freaky image. Not the only time this happens. And of course, does further blur the line between life and object. Everything is just mechanically doing its part, they say. Which, of course, is what Danny is doing in life right now. Just doing her part. And what Christian is doing in their relationship. So it does apply to both of them. Right. Just, quote unquote, just doing their part. He's not really doing his part. (laughs) Like, you know, working, going through the motions kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. This nice time is shattered, though, when Mark says, you guys are like my family. I love that it takes a second to click for her. She's like looking up at the sky and Mark goes, you guys are like my family. And there's a beat and then her face drops. It's like the wind got knocked out of her. She has to literally walk away. Christian offers to walk with her, and she says, no, do yep. not come with me. <laughs> and again, like that's what's so good about Pew's performance in general, like because this happens like multiple times throughout the movie, and it's already happened. It's like you said, it's like they, she, she's just so clearly suppressing what it is she's actually feeling. And then so like, and she's trying so hard to do it. So all it takes is that one little kind of push, and she just kind of completely frazzled. And her only answer to do it is to get away from all this and to just to completely just get on her own. And it's the only way she can truly kind of like express herself. And then we come to see later in the movie, which is literally forced to do it in front of people. How it can kind of almost be this like cathartic experience type of thing, right? Definitely. And she is spiraling hard here. You know, she thinks that the people she's walking towards are laughing at her. She winds up in a little cabin outhouse. Wasn't quite sure what that thing was. Place It has pictures hanging up, which made me think it wasn't an outhouse. And it's also <laughs> like, what would it be doing there if it's not that? So I don't know what it is, but she sees herself in the mirror. She freaks out and she runs into the forest in fear. And the screen goes black and we fade into the flickering light of a dark room. Her sister staring at her next to her parents. Not having a good time here, folks. Not the best trip, no. No. They find her. They let her sleep for six hours. I love she wakes up. She goes, is it tomorrow? Well, from yesterday's perspective. (laughs) Well, I guess so, technically. (laughs) They head for Pele's home, though. They trek through the forest, off some trails, and yes, enter through this large wooden circle that looks like a portal to another time, especially with the outfits. They're tootle-tooting on some flutes to greet them and whatnot. That's what I was just about to say. Okay, you mentioned it. I I always forget, every time I watch this, when they're walking into this, like, fantastical, again, world, almost like fairy tale-esque commune. I always forget that there's literally people playing flutes there. It's not just the score. There's literally, like, if you look to the side, there's, like, four people playing the flutes as they come in. It's like, oh, my God. It's like, okay, this is beyond ridiculous as I'm thinking as it is. Yeah, it's very funny. I also, one thing that really makes me laugh, it's happening in this moment, which is why I'm mentioning mentioning it, but it also happens across the entire movie. Mark is just constantly vaping. Yes, yes. (laughs) Like, dude fucking relax man <laughs> always like he literally does not have the thing out of his hand and it's always during the most like it's always you know, he really emphasize it on the scenes where it should be something he's like, either in of or something of interest is going on and he's just there meanwhile just completely enamored which is like you said just vaping and not giving yeah. a shit at all these huge clouds as he's supposed to be just like wow look at how incredible this village we're entering is 
But the whole community and guests are gathered for the welcoming ceremony. It's been 90 years since the last great feast where they did the full ceremony instead of just a midsummer, and will be 90 more until the next one. But what poetry that it's the brightest and hottest summer on record to do it with until the next one. Right. Global warming. So I got a question too, like, I mean, because I know you've got extensive notes there. So it's every 90 years the great feast is happening. So, but every year they do have the Midsummer like celebration anyway. So what is it that I'm missing? Like, what is it that's disconnected from the 90 year experience to just the annual experience? You know what I mean? My like, understanding was that the, the sacrifices happen every 90 years. Okay. It would be a more typical, just like harvest festival during the, the rest of them. But in order to maintain the entirety of the, of the sacredness, they do bust out the nine sacrifices every 90 years. Which, That's what I thought. Okay. You know, it, it, it seems like a lot, but then you're like, well, it's only like one life cycle plus a little bit, right? So, right. Uh, you know, it's uh, was a little, maybe that part is not communicated perfectly. But. No, but again, it's like, it's, it, but it's almost kind of like what's been done with the whole film. You know what I mean? It's like they're kind mm-hmm. of playing with you in that sense where it's just like, it's like, I'm, I'm sure, obviously, like if you're an Oscar, you'd be like, okay, here's the clear answers, obviously. But, I'm wondering if he's doing that deliberately to kind of make you question certain things and not be sure, sure. of like how the way it is. Because I mean, even after multiple viewings, I'm still concretely trying to figure out like what specifically is cut out from the 90 year process. Because clearly a bunch of these things still happen every yeah. year. But it's like, yeah. you're right. Like, where is the, I thought it was what you just said. It's like the official sacrifice we come to see with mm-hmm. the, you know, because I mean, at the end of the day, are they going to build that thing every year? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's yeah. kind of like. <laughs> So we gotta burn this thing we just built. Jesus, we gotta do this again. All right, come (laughs) on, get the wood. One thing I also found pretty interesting about this opening scene, like the scene of them opening the ceremony, is that Christian. You see how out of place he is right away because they hand him the drinks, and he immediately takes it, and he's the only one who takes this drink. And so then, when everybody, like when it's time for the ceremonial shot taking. He he has nothing to do, right? Yeah. He does like he does like a little gesture, and that's it because everyone else is participating in the ritual, and he's off to the side here. Exactly. Um, and I think that that kind of burns him a little bit in a way that he is like, I can't let Josh get one over on me. Yep. <laughs> I can't let him know this. <laughs> and again, it's just like perfectly to like the nature of like what we were saying about him earlier in terms of like he likes to be perceived that he knows all the answers and that he's smart and he's educated and stuff like that but he really isn't paying fully attention to like what he's actually experiencing he's not listening he's not really taking part he like he's almost on the periphery and listening selectively to what he wants to be taking part in type of thing right, right? it's kind of like that's the vibe i get from start to finish with his character right yeah The community is dancing, and one of the women joins the chain, this woman, Maya. We see her sort of psyching herself up like it's before a big performance. And then she comes out, and she seriously sizes up the crowd. Then her gaze lands on our group. She flirtily gives Christian a duck-duck-goose kind of kick as they circle him. Seems to me that she's selected Christian as the one to continue the bloodline with here, but you also wonder, like, oh, later on, Pele says that he showed her a picture of Christian. Like, has she known since before they arrived that he was going to be the one? Yeah. So that's a question, too, that I got for you as well. Kind of like, I mean, I'm sure it's because I know they're kind of like unanswerable, I suppose. But, like, 
So do you get the vibe as well that each year, like Pele and every all these other, like, you know, people kind of coming back for the festival every year, but from the commune, probably outside and stuff. Do you think they still bring people every year, regardless of sacrifice or not? Do you know what I mean? Like, would they, would Pele still put this work in regardless of if the sacrifice was going to happen? Or is this just, is this only an effort they take every 90 years type of thing? My understanding was that they are encouraged to bring people back to further diversify the bloodlines, right. but that they, they're they not so specifically soliciting, like, a Christian, right? But, right? but when we learn about Ingmar being interested in Connie, it does seem to me like he might have been interested in bringing her back as a potential candidate for, like, joining as well. Right, and right. Obviously, she doesn't fit into the group. But oh, you're right. That's a t- that makes a ton of sense because clearly, like what because I, I that's funny you mentioned that. I've always found that interesting that they really specifically made that reference in there because like that's clearly the significance of what it was. Is you're right. Like he wanted to bring her in and quote unquote before he thought they were dating, which clearly like there was nothing really going coming of that. But that might have been what his intention was. And then when he found out no, she's gonna go with Simon, he was like flipped the motives and was like, okay, I can you I can exploit you guys in another sense type of thing for the sacrifice, right? Definitely. That that bit of dialogue didn't really strike me until this third watch, but he does discuss, he says, I was dating her, and she goes, we went on a date that yeah. I didn't know was a date. And so, at one point you go, oh wow, it's weird that they were like staying friends that long then, but you realize this could have been the long game murder plot, yep. where he was like, okay, well, I know that they're not going to make it out of Hargaland here, and so I'll have my incel revenge on her. <laughs> like, I also thought it was really funny. Simon is like, "Oh yeah, we actually asked Ingmar to officiate the wedding," and, and he goes, "Really?" And he goes, "No." <laughs> he laughs about it. No. <laughs> Just like the fact that he is so dismissive of Ingmar, like, really makes it feel like this is a revenge thing for him. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, that's so true. Exactly. And I was thinking about it from this context that because I always found just like what you said, that it, it being it was like such a specific note that they just kind of plunged in there. I was like, there's like, there's some reference for that. But that, to me, makes a lot more sense how to read that. There are a few Chekhovian elements introduced as they wander the community. There's a sacred temple in the shape of a big yellow pyramid that nobody can enter. There's a bear in a cage. Really funny when Simon is like, are we going to just ignore the bear? And Ingmar is like, what? It's a bear. It's a bear in a cage. There it is. (laughs) The camera also pans past a tapestry that depicts a little love story, as they call it, but is uh, the path of a couple that falls in love via magic that involves period blood and some pubic hair put into the victim's food. Coercion, if it were real. And we'll see that these efforts are, in fact, replicated by Maya towards Christian. The roof and the walls of their sleeping quarters are also painted with all sorts of runes and pictures, like that wallpaper painting that I was talking about before. Very impressive to me and the gang alike. Lots of pictures depicting the violent ends of our group. And also a wall of fame for the May Queens, crowned via dance competition. So a lot to take in in this uh, sleeping quarters area. We learn a bit more about their culture. Kids live here until they're 18, which is the spring of their life. Then they go on a pilgrimage during the summer of their life, returning at 36 to become a laborer during their life's autumn and chill during winter as mentors until they're 72. And Danny asks what happens at 72. And after a moment's hesitation, Pele makes a cutting across the throat motion and kind of laughs it off. But we having seen the movie know that's no joke. (laughs) (laughs) 
there's a great moment too where we see Pele warning Christian about Danny's birthday, and so he pulls her outside to sing and fail to light a candle in a piece of bunt cake. Ugh. Meanwhile, she's seeing actual true connection just to their right, as multiple generations beside them are all singing and swaying together. You know, this stings as it's not just Christian that she struggles to communicate with, but as you mentioned, her own family doesn't seem to have the best communication skills. So for her to see this multi-generational effort and 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 synchronization yeah. uh, has got to hurt. And just concern for one another. It's like it's like I was saying, it's like they clearly, I mean, besides Pele seeing the opportunity he has with Danny, like the commune itself have clearly been communicated this before she got there because they completely go out of their way to make her involved in almost anything they can type of thing. And just to view the Pew's performance, she sells it so well of just being like, oh, okay, I guess. And you could tell she never finds it strange. You can tell she's kind of enamored by the, the fact that she's in the, the power of just you know, communal life and just being yeah. accepted and being taken part in things, right? So it's like you said, even on the periphery, with this terrible instance of this sad excuse for, like, a cake he's trying to present her the last <laughs> second, and all this stuff, like, happiness is going on around her. It's just, like, you know, it makes it even worse for her type of thing. Definitely. And the next day is the Atastupa, and the two most elderly members of the community, both 72, emerge from the temple. They take a place of honor at the head of the big, runically shaped assemblage of tables, and their meal concludes as ceremoniously as it began. The two carried off in their chairs to a cliff, while one of their leaders cuts their hands to rub on the runic rock, sharing in the impending pain. And Mark bails to take a nap, as we mentioned, but the rest all follow to see what happens. Specifically, the elder pair jump off a cliff willingly. There's even a stone target to aim for, which I found amusingly bleak. <laughs> it's like, I don't think it's any bleaker. It's like, oh, a giant rock in the middle of this sand pit. And I mean, that, that's the thing, too, is just, again, like, aesthetically, just the eye of Ariasta, like, it's, like, even just this, the way it's specifically lit, and the way, like, the, the sand and stuff, everything's so white, and it's, like, the contrast is, like, almost, like, bleeding through the screen type of thing, and I just love the choice of the starkness of it, because, again, it just, it just makes the Westerners pop in terms of their gray... Bland, like the label-less bland clothing type of thing, right? Like, it's just yeah. such a specific choice, and it just... Again, just burns the kind of like the imagery of that whole scene in your head even further, right? Definitely. And it's also part of what burns it into my head, at least, is how calm everyone is except the visitors. Because there are plenty of elderly Harga. And so you know that they are thinking, my time is coming. Yep. I have a running clock on, (laughs) on my own time to jump off this cliff. And. It's disconcerting, and all of the visitors are like, what the fuck is happening here? And it's just a perfect example, too, it's like almost like as cartoonish as it is. It's just a perfect example of, like, you know, when you do go to some other culture, some, and I mean, again, much lower stakes version of what we're talking about here. But, like, again, like, to your point is, like, when you're in a room full of people who just appreciate some form of ritualistic anything and it's like and you just don't understand but they're trying to express you it's like yeah but don't worry we're not like being forced to do this this is for the better cause of it type of thing and it's almost like not that you're justifying but you're you're, it's kind of getting the point across of like who are we to say they're wrong if they choose to kind of live like this and look at things this way right yeah and simon and connie are screaming while danny gets tunnel vision and muffled audio again but it's the dude's turn now and he misses the target so he's not actually dead just in agony with shattered legs 
and the leader has to go crush his noggin with a giant hammer. Of note, though, is the audience sharing in his pain here as he uh, is on the ground. And that's the first time we kind of get the idea of this like, almost like weird hive mind kind of mentality they're supposed to express. Like you said, right. whenever someone's feeling sadness or dread or pain, it's like their clear notion of to make them feel better is that we will lighten the burden by experiencing it with you and trying to kind of like take it off of your back type of thing, right? Right. Lashing back at the inevitable corrupts the spirit, says the leader, to try and calm the Londoners. We give our lives back as a gesture instead of dying in pain and shame. Pain and shame like Danny feels as she isolates herself behind the temple to cry. Right. Christian, meanwhile, talks to Josh in their sleeping area. He tells him, not just asks him, that he's going to do his thesis on the people they're visiting here, too. Josh is understandably furious. He says this is lazy and leechy. And Christian says, hey, you're doing it on Midsommar, not just these people. And this is too much for Josh. He says, find your own subject, Christian, your own passion. I am actually invested in this. This is not some glorified hobby I'm dipping my feet into. And then Christian has the just ultimate burn where he says, I'm open to collaborating. Oh, God. (laughs) Such a Christian move. (laughs) Danny is packing up to go, but Pele convinces her otherwise. He basically pitches her on communal living. He says that when his parents died in a fire, he never had a chance to feel lost because the rest of them were his family and embraced him. And she protests his holding of her hand because Christian could walk in and he says, that's what I'm talking about. Does he feel like home to you? And not only is this just a very well acted scene, but when he says that I never had the chance to feel lost, there is almost an element of like, you're supposed to work through these feelings. Like yes. you, it's It's part of grieving to feel bad and if if they rush you through that then they're not actually helping you necessarily exactly and, and that's just it and that, again the irony of you mentioning early on that danny's focusing in psychology it's just it's the fact of like what you're saying the whole film we've seen so far is that she's running away and denying any form of grief or mm-hmm. anxiety or fear or depression instead of just like taking it on full force and just accepting it for what it is type of thing. Because clearly everyone in her life has made her feel guilty for having these feelings. So she feels like I'm a burden. So like, it's, it's like she's suppression is the only answer here. And Pele is the first example we ever get where it's like, he's not letting her run away. He's like, no, see, we're top again, not justifying anything that kind of comes of certain ways, but he's like, we're going to talk about this. And you can just see in Florence's performance, just like how she doesn't even physically know how to react. She's like shaking her hands and she's acting like a child. And it's just, because she doesn't, she's not used to this, and she doesn't yeah. know how to express it properly, right? Definitely. Yeah, nice, another nice long look at the busted up corpses as they're put onto the pyre, which I appreciated from Ari. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, hey, you put all the work into that makeup, might as well, uh, might as well get a look at it. Yeah, we're gonna see it right before we burn it too. Might as well, right? Yeah. Danny takes a sleeping pill that night, but she still wakes up because the dang gang is running off without her. There's these huge plumes of exhaust in their wake as they drive off, and suddenly she's exhaling a giant cloud of the same toxic black gas, then she has visions intermingling the deaths that she's seen here, and the deaths of her family, and there's some slight rejuvenation elements too, like the dead sister opening her eyes, and the crushed head resealing, and suddenly she wakes up. It was a dream all along. And again, just kind of coming further back to the notion of just her fear of isolation and not being accepted type of thing and being abandoned, right? I mean, that's just clearly what we're kind of getting pressed down here from that dream with Danny, right? Definitely. Josh and Mark head out for the day. We see the community sacrificing an effigy of a deer. 
and Josh gets some mixed news. They're going to let him into the temple, but he has to split it with Christian, who asked first. I meant to clock it, and I didn't. I don't remember if Christian actually does ask first. I think that he doesn't, and that it like is just another element of their racism that they're like, Christian is allowed to do it. Right, right. So, I don't know. I meant to look at that, and I didn't actually, so apologies to the people out there. Don't yell at me in the comments. <laughs> Josh also inquires about the love rune that he saw Maya sneak under Christian's bed, but the piece is shattered by Mark taking a leak on the ashes of the people who've been sacrificed, the ancestral tree. People are pissed about this piss. One in particular. Yes, Ulf is is very, very upset. They don't get too much time though to dwell on it. The Londoners are leaving, and in fact, one of them is, quote, already at the train station. Although the uh, the other one, Connie, is like, what the hell are you talking about? He wouldn't leave me here. They're having to improvise now a little bit here. This is where things start to really kind of turn sideways. And, and again, kind of coming back to what I was expressing earlier, trying to like verbalize in terms of like what I do find unsettling and scary about movies like this. It's this notion where it's like, again, not to use the term gaslighting or anything like that, but it's like when you're calmly being explained something by especially like a group of people and you're made to feel like you're out of your mind for like not seeing the normality of what they're saying, even though what they're saying is outrageous. Right. Like to me, that's just such an uncomfortable, freaky feeling to me, and it just exactly it just exudes like nightmare kind of situations. Where it's like kind of I don't know, not the exact same thing, but like you're trying to dial a phone number in a dream, and for some reason you know what you got to call, but you can't dial the number type of thing. Right? It's the same kind of like endless cycle where it's like you're trying to argue with someone who you know knows the opposite end of the motive behind it, but you just can't get it across from them. And again, mm-hmm. when when you're isolated in this community and you have no way out of it just further emphasizes how terrifying experience it is, right? Right. Danny tells Christian, who basically doesn't give a shit, he's busy asking one of the elders if they have troubles with incest, uh, and this guy says, basically just cousins, and the elders have to approve, uh, so we often have to invite outside people. Right. Which is of note. Danny continues to just wander around unanchored until she feels invited into the kitchen by the other women. And it's cozy, and they're complimenting her, and they're helping her feel wanted. And this is, I think, a pretty key scene, because she has so actively felt like a fifth wheel the entire time on the trip, but suddenly she's being welcomed into an intimate activity. And it does begin to develop that sense of belonging that they'll prey upon. Meanwhile, Josh is discussing the holy book with an elder, a scripture of emotional sheet music called the Ruby Ratter, being written by Ruben who is a uh, disfigured lad who is, quote, unclouded by normal cognition. And he draws, they interpret, uh, an oracle cultivated through inbreeding, which shocks Josh. And I do think that this is another gesture at their positive association with genetic homogeneity and does satirize the ethnic nationalist paradigm. Yeah. Where they're like, oh, it's good for us all to be exactly the same. And well, look at what you get, right? Right. Inbreeding. Yeah, and it just kind of comes back with the idea of just, like you said, eugenics and stuff like that, in terms of, like, this is the this is like the one that's, like you said, the unfazed one who can speak to God type of thing. And I think, like, Ariaster clearly is almost, like, cartoonishly, like, <laughs> laughing at the text itself when you look at it. It's just smeared paintings. And then you got these wise, older mentors, you know, near the end of their life cycle, interpreting this nonsense. Where, I mean, not 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 in any way putting any kind of like nonsense to any other religious texts and stuff like that, but it's just showing you how us as humans 
tend to just subjectively really project what we certainly want out of certain texts when it's not probably there at all type of thing. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what Arias was going for because, you know, when we go back later and Josh is taking pictures of these books, it's like, what are you taking pictures of? It's just a bunch of like smeared painting, <laughs> finger painting. Like this, it is nothing. Like what, what is it you're documenting exactly? You don't even know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's through this conversation though that it begins to dawn on Josh why they've been invited. He does sort of start to get it a little bit. The baking slash vaping slash learning is interrupted by a scream though, uh, but nobody will say who it was. And at lunch, Danny wonders where Connie is, and one of the community members says, "Oh, I drove her to meet her boyfriend already," which seems untrue. <laughs> <laughs> he just completely, just conveniently is sitting next to him. Oh, by the way. I drove her specifically. I know exactly what happened. <laughs> There's more talk of miscommunication because Christian says, oh, it probably was just miscommunication. And Danny says she could see Christian leaving her behind. And I, again, not to just harp on how great her performance is, but she doesn't even really seem bitter. Just more like actually realizing that that's the case. Yeah. Where she's like, I think Christian would leave me here. Yeah. And he's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Mark is getting stared down at lunch by Ulf, the guy who saw him peeing. He asks, is he going to kill me? Which made me laugh. He's just staring him down across the table. He couldn't look any more pissed. Yeah. I also, I do think Will Poulter is really good in this movie. He does a great job at being high early on. He is a perfect asshole in this movie. Yeah, he's really good. And it's interesting casting, too. Like, I'm just trying to picture, like, where he was specifically with his career. I mean, he's just, like, you know, he's a real name now in terms of, like, a lot of films out there. But, yeah, this is such, like, almost a nothing part that someone could have just been generically kind of thrown into. And it is amazing to look back at it and just see that he just is kind of, like, you know, the the D-level character here. And like you said, he he really makes the most of it and highlights it, in my opinion. Definitely. Christian gets a special love potion meat pie. Mark gets pulled aside by the girl he's been crushing on. And this confirms for Josh that they're being used for genetic diversity. But with knowledge of the rituals surrounding Midsummer and his being an unselected new blood, he fears for his disposability. And he goes looking for more information in the Ruby Ratter and to take pictures as proof, which is something expressly forbidden. Suddenly, Mark stumbles in, and Josh notices a few things as he hisses at him to close the door. First, that Reuben is sleeping right there. And second, that there's blood leaking through Mark's clothes. He doesn't get long to absorb it, though, because he gets clocked by a hammer from behind. Mark approaches, and we see that it's actually not Mark, but a Mark suit that someone, Ulf, <laughs> has made from his flesh. I Because what was it referenced earlier? I think we might have glossed past it. We're again kind of just... Oh, we've been making fuel. Exactly. Like, I mean, we've been saying this the whole kind of run through this movie is that everything, the fate of everyone is being painted right in front of their faces the whole time. And it's almost like the commune are laughing at them because of this. It's like, guys, this is so obvious. Like, you don't see what we're doing here type of thing. And literally, like you said, there was a scene where the kids were just like getting ready to play a game. It's like, oh, what are they doing? Like, skin the fool. And, you know, what do we see later when we kind of see everything kind of coming together? But a gesture hat on at the end of the day. Jangle, jangle. Jangle. The next morning, Danny wonders where everyone is. (laughs) Christian says, I'm honestly not too concerned, which could be on this dude's gravestone. (laughs) You know what? I don't really care. (laughs) The book was quote unquote missing. They're setting up a claim that Josh took it and ran for his thesis, which Christian is all too happy to lean into. He says, we don't associate as friends or collaborators. Please don't connect us to this. 
which is, of course, this American individualism to contrast the collective ethos that we've seen. Right. And also, too, Christian's clear behavior to not even just Danny, but immediately throwing someone else under the bus to make himself look good. Immediately. Yeah. And Christian gets called over to the leader's house for a little chat. It is a much more damning scene for Christian in the extended version. And Danny goes with the women to do the May Queen dance competition. More drug tea, though, first. These people party fucking hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. They don't hold. I love that scene where she's taking it with the other girl. And she's like, well, here we go. Like, I, I, I love that choice, how she's almost like, like this is going to be fun. You ready yeah. for this? Like, I love that choice. I also love seeing the backgrounds just, like, pulsing slightly, like, right before the music starts. And away they go. And she bumps a woman who pukes from the drugs, which also really makes <laughs> me laugh. And uh, presumably also the motion. But like Pele says, Danny doesn't have a moment to process before she is swept back up in the communal expression. Yeah. And it's the first time, too, that we can note, literally in the entire movie, that I think we see genuinely Danny smile and laugh. Like, it's yeah. the only time that I can remember where she's actually experiencing going through this. She's just embracing the culture for what it is, embracing the community, embracing this, like, you know, sense of belonging. And again, like, what do we see? Like, she literally is laughing and smiling. And then what does she do? She looks over at Christian, who's just this miserable lump again, right? Right. He he does, yeah, because he joins the audience. He is still in the house at the moment. He's staring at an intense depiction on the wall of a bear engulfed in flames. That probably won't come back. That probably won't be anything. The elder asks him how he feels about Maya. He says, I think I ate one of her pubic hairs. <laughs> and she says, sounds probably right. <laughs> I, just, like, I always forget that that's how that conversation ends. It's like, yeah, that sounds all right. Did you just see him leaving the little house? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's funny. It, it is definitely a longer scene in the uh, extended version, but that comedic cut is just so good. <laughs> it's perfect. Danny has made it to the Elite Eight, and she's so excited until she sees Christian is back and all slouchy and looking like a bum, and mm -hmm. her expression falls when she sees him. Back they go, though. No time for her to examine these feelings because they're on the move. And a woman encourages Christian to drink the drugs, too. He does it after some mild resistance. And Danny is losing herself in the dance. Suddenly she can understand the language. We don't need words to talk. And she actually wins. <laughs> Hooray for the May Queen. And she's like, me? Why? What? Now, question to you on top of it, because I always kind of like, I think it could go either way, but I'm sure there's a definitive answer at the end of the day. Do you think they deliberately let her win? Oh, boy. This is the question, isn't it? Because it could, it could go either way, right? Like, Yeah. I thought that she did. And, and then I thought that she didn't. And then I kind of came back around to thinking that they did. The reason I think maybe they didn't is because... The other woman, like, just... She is stopping and she just, like, stops short. The other girl does. Which bumps... The woman who's been with Danny. It looks accidental for the woman who's talking to Danny. Yeah. And so if it's not accidental, then it was like a two-person thing that they're doing there where she, the other one is stopping her. Yeah. You know, I, I think that the ambiguity of that question is part of what makes it so interesting. Exactly. We are now as paranoid as possible going, how deep does this go? Like... Exactly. I, I, I like that. I don't think we'll ever get an answer. No. I like it a lot. And again, like I see the framing of it where it's like it would make sense for this to be all the plan all along because it just makes it so much easier for them to just ingrain her into the culture. Then It's almost like the final step to get her to be part of the commune type of thing. But 
again, I'm with you. I think I could kind of go either way. I'm still, I'm open to either interpretation, honestly, unless someone tells me black and white. It's like, oh, no, this is what's happening here, right? Yeah. I think my final answer, even just thinking about it now, I think not purposely set up because I think it's just more inclination of her being like a perfect fit. For yeah. That's how I, that is how I view it as well. I mean, I'm not trying to be like pandering here and just like agree with what you're saying, but it's like that's how I turn it. Because I mean, it, it it adds. I think more credit has to be given to Danny's character that she's yeah. achieving this, and I don't think this thing's being handed to her. But the opportunity's there for it to go either way, type of thing, right? Right, and then later on when they're like, and congrats to Pele on his perfect intuition on on this stuff. To me, that says like she did go through the challenge and came out successful. Yeah, so. and he genuinely seemed insanely surprised when she won. I mean, I know obviously you can interpret that as like, oh, he's pouring it on thick because he wants her to feel good and accepted and stuff. But I think he genuinely was like, holy shit, like, yeah, this is really paying, paying off for me type of thing. Yeah, and she's so excited to be celebrated, to be wanted, specifically. They adorn her in flowers. She's happily bewildered. The flowers are still all druggy, to remind you of the influence, though. They're breathing and moving on their own. It is... Honestly, I find it to be really effectively freaky because everything else is so normal, quote unquote. I mean, they're still doing all this ritualistic stuff, but like none of the imagery is psychedelic or anything except for that. Yep. And it just reminds you every now and then you're like, oh, yeah, fuck. They're all on drugs and shit. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And and again, like you're saying, from – the dance for the May Queen onward. Like, there is, it's relentless. There is no, they don't let them breathe without continuing this trip. Like, there is no break for her and Christian from this point onwards. And that really just further emphasizes, again, coming to the scene we'll talk about in a second here now, about Christian's reaction to be like, what the fuck is going on here type of thing. It just, it brings us as the audience in. We're almost exhausted feeling it type of thing, right? Yeah, she looks out, she sees Christian there all by himself, and the choice is really laid out. Does he feel like home to her? Or does this group feel like home to her? Right. And which one is the answer is made abundantly clear when Danny thinks that she sees her mother in the crowd. Yeah, right, 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 right. Pele gives her a big smooch. She's lifted up on a platform and carried away to the feasting table as Christian watches. We do get a glimpse of reality. I really like this. There's this one scene where you see all the flies buzzing around the like awful meat and it's like rotting isn't it like crazy or is the meat just like gone bad or is it that just part of the hallucination you know? i think it's like it's like just like organ meat that we wouldn't necessarily be like going to eat right it, it's a, a, a acquired taste kind of thing and i think that the flies buzzing around it as it's been sitting out is that glimpse in past the the veneer Right, right. We, they are all. Oh, everything is perfect, and look at how amazing this is. But meat is rotting on the table as we are actually looking at it. Right, so, right. Another, another little jab from Ari, I think, about sort of the the illusion of perfection offered right. by these ethnocentric enclaves. It is, of course, panned away from quickly for more good looking and drug pulsing food, and they all take her cue- their cues from her. At the head of the table with this leaf throne, the leaf throne is, of course, moving and breathing, too. They say, oh, you're one of the family now, yes? Like, you're one of us. Christian is alone, despite being surrounded. And I was really reminded, as she embraced this sort of setup, 
of the moment where she says, I could see you leaving me behind. And this is sort of the inversion of that, where yes. she now can see herself leaving Christian behind. Exactly. It's, it's, it's like you said, it's the first notion, like, from the dance onward, where she's holding the power here. And you can mm-hmm. see in her head, just through, like, Pew's performance, that, and without saying anything, that she's gradually understanding that power she's holding and wielding, and just saying that, like, you know, like, you are not the end-all, be-all. You are not, like, the only option I have in life, type of thing, right? And like you said, it's this is this a gradual realization and support from these people around her saying that, yeah, you can make your own choice here. Like, it's not all through Christian type of thing, right? You can flip the switch on him, basically. Right. He's getting fucked with in the meantime. The old man claps in his face. Funny <laughs> as shit. Love that scene. Danny goes into a carriage and Christian isn't allowed to come. The queen must ride alone to a spot where they plant grain, meat, and eggs with the hope for a bountiful harvest to come and they sing a prayer. Christian, however, is invited to follow a trail of petals into a cabin where he inhales a bunch of drugs and the password is Fidelio's the masked guy to let him into the sex dungeon. And the redhead is there, Maya, but so are the rest of the women who are left all nude and humming and they lead him to her. And then so comes the most uncomfortable theater experience I can possibly imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I did really think it was funny. You know, they talked about how they had to expand the bloodlines. They did tell Christian this at one point, but they never said anything about keeping them around afterward. And I just thought that it was like, this truly is like them squeezing what they need out of Christian. Yeah. He's signing his own death warrant here. It's literally, like I said, it's the flip on the whole movie. It's like, you think they're there and it's like, oh, this poor commune is going to be exploited by these outsiders and they're going to take what they need from them and then just kind of jump ship. But at the end of the day, it's like I said, no, what they're doing, they're literally flipping around on them. They're exploiting them, taking any kind of resources they need from them and just discarding them right at the end of the day. Right. And it's funny, too, when Christian is shocked by the older women approaching and getting really close as they share this positive emotion as well, not just pain, but also echoing this pleasure. Danny returns, and they try to divert her to get blessed by the elder, but she hears the moans in the sex dungeon. She determinedly stomps over. She looks in through the lock and just immediately pukes. Just immediately pukes. <laughs> She's hustled away by the new sisters, where she collapses and sobs, and they all do as well, echoing her wails. I honestly was waiting for someone to be like, that's you. That's how you sound like right now. <laughs> <laughs> and the choice too, like, again, like, uh, I, th- I think it's, like, it's such a choice in this scene where they go back to, like you said, the housing and like all the women are there to console Danny and kind of make her feel better. Again, just further, just kind of jump on this vulnerability she has to make her feel wanted and like, you know, express this pain with her. The right. choice Arioster has, they're clearly having a handheld camera and things get kind of janky and shaky when everything is so fluent and choreographed throughout the whole movie. It just really makes this scene so much more memorable than if it was just kind of like his standard staging setup. Because, I mean, not that he's like Wes Anderson or anything like that, but I think you can kind of agree with a lot of his staging and framing. It's very kind of like dollhouse-ish at times, if you kind of know what I mean. You can see I it. Mean, and yeah, hereditary is predicated upon that. In a lot exactly. Of and I mean, even Bo is the same thing in terms of like certain kind of stage setups and that as well, which which creates this kind of weird cartoonish feel to it. But it's such it's so jarring when in that specific scene, like I said, it clearly goes to kind of handheld shaky and just and it creates the urgency of what's going on type of thing. For sure. And Christian is literally getting his butt pushed. That's how interactive this has become. And the group finally climaxes together. And he sort of snaps back in. 
Yeah. Flees the scene. <laughs> Dong flopping all over the damn place. He makes a break for it, and he finds the foot of Josh sticking out of the garden with a rune on it, the rune for knowledge, and he hides in a little shack. You can clearly see someone watching him there, so they know exactly where he is. Like, when he runs into this shack, there's people in the background just, like, watching yeah. him. And it's just this one shack in the middle of nowhere. Like, there's nowhere for him to go. <laughs> and again, such a choice, though, like, of him just being naked when he runs out of there. Like, I mean, you could not be in any more of a vulnerable position than Christian at that point. Just completely caught with his pants down and, like, completely surrounded. Nowhere to go. What is he going to do? I mean, we, again, we have the audience just waiting for this to just kind of collapse on him, right? Yeah. And in the shack is the elaborate scene out of Cottage Core 7, or Saw, our English guy, Simon, strung up horizontally with his back torn open and his organs splayed out, but his lungs inflating and deflating to let us know that he is, in fact, still alive. Right, right, yeah. Christian turns to run, but there's a member of the gang there who blows some more crap in his face, and he quickly collapses, paralyzed but conscious. And when his eyes are opened again, he's at the front of another speech by the elders, though Danny is buried under a pile of flowers up to her neck there as well. Great costume. Love it. The Day of the Deity of Reciprocity. The, the elder says, which I thought was telling. And uh, they say that they are sacrificing nine human lives to the father, four outsiders, four of their people, and one to be chosen by the May Queen. The outsiders are the four who've been killed, Mark, Josh, and the two Brits. The two elderly that jumped are two of the Horga, plus Igmar, whose new blood didn't work out, and Ulf, who failed to guard the ancestral tree and then also killed Mark and Josh, and also maybe beat up the woman who Mark was tempted by. I don't know if you got a good look at her, but in this scene, post-Mark's death, she is battered and also really? has, like, a giant red phallus attached to her, the front of her outfit. I did not notice that. <laughs> yeah, man. It's really intense decoration. She definitely stands out, and when you compare the use of red on her to the use of red on Maya, who now looks very adult and has, like, the red lipstick on to show that she is she's a woman now. Right, right. It definitely seems denigrating to this other woman, the way that they're using it. Just some really, just, yeah, that background stuff where you're like, this doesn't really affect anything that's happening in the plot, but it's just a continuation of a storyline that we've seen playing out is happening in the background. Right, okay, okay. So there's nothing touched on that in, like, the extended version or anything, is there? Like No. Okay. She's just, she's just there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, Pele is getting honored because Christian is a daddy now, and Danny is the May Queen. Unclouded intuition, they say. And Danny picks the paralyzed Christian for death, reciprocity. We see the sacrifices being brought to the pyramidic building, most of them corpses already. Mark is jingling and jangling with his new hat, like we said, a reference to Skin the Fool. And a mentor is teaching the youngsters how to hollow out the bear we saw earlier, and they're going to stuff Christian inside, passing on the traditions by doing it together. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> the panic in Christian's eyes are the only sign things are going poorly. Everyone else is smiling and going along peacefully. Like you said, this dreamlike feeling of being like, what is, like, this is wrong. I, we all, why are you acting so normal about yeah. this? It's just the, the juxtaposition of it all is just like yeah, exactly what makes things so frightening and uncomfortable, right? It's like you said, and then on top of it, like I, I'm surprised I've never really a chance to touch on it. The score in this final like 10 minute sequence, right? It's just, it, it just makes it so memorable. And I don't think, I, I should have kind of harped on it a little more. Like the minimalistic kind of string score in this, and I mean, there's touches of it in Hereditary, which is a little more kind of poppy. 
But I mean, it, it's it's really like a main stake in this film as well, and it really kind of makes the last ten minutes of this movie just climax to right like where Ariaster wants it to. You know what I mean? And it's just it is next level in my opinion in terms of like expanding this beyond like what just we're actually watching type of thing. Yeah, the hay inside is lit, and Christian is burned alive with the corpses and the patient Harga. I do think it's worth mentioning that the Harga are placid until they're actually on fire. And, you know, there's an element, there's the, there's the meme where it's like, never thought the face-eating cheetah party would eat my face, etc., etc. <laughs> and they tell him, like, they give him, like, some, some wax stuff that's supposed to yeah. make it not feel like anything. But they lied to him. That's what I was going to say, liars. Yeah. <laughs> That's, okay, so that's what the punchline is, right? It's saying that this is all bullshit. Like, is that, right. is, that's, that's how you read it as well, right? Definitely, definitely. Okay, okay. Yeah, they're lying liars, it turns out. Okay, okay. And that's it. The pyramid is aflame. Danny watches dispassionately at first, but eventually releases her emotions along with the rest of the Harga, and it collapses, and she smiles a big smile through soft, gauzy lighting, and she knows she'll never have to feel bad again. Just (laughs) listen to the elders and share the load. Catharsis! You did it. Such an incredible final shot, man. And just her just sauntering through that field in this, like, caterpillar-like flower gown. Like, all that's exposed is her head. Like, what a just brilliant just way to kind of, like, close this movie out. It's just, again, just, I mean, it's, it's so early to say it because it's so, it's like, they're, you know, only a few years separate. But it's like, it, to me, it's like iconic imagery. Like, it really is. It's just this neo kind of folk art aesthetic, like, ugh. And it's just like, after all this build up to this this ending to this movie, it just like vomited onto the screen, and it's just again, it's just such a payoff for what we were kind of expecting the whole time. And again, while at the same time, is what I was kind of insinuating earlier about my kind of problems with Ari Aster's third act. He kind of has a little not not that there's a problem with it, but like him really tying the points together at the end don't fully align with the imagery and like what we're seeing on screen sometimes. But this movie is where everything melds together to me the point the themes he's trying to get across the narrative itself the character arcs and the imagery itself are all just one entity and it's just it's one of it is one of my favorite endings to a movie ever like it's brilliant and it's just like one of the best final shots you'll get i think yeah an absolute gut punch and now scott we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why it's not just a good horror movie but is in fact the best horror movie ever made i'm gonna let you start all right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, I think I kind of touched on a lot of this just throughout the episode here as we, we've been talking. And I mean, it's really hard to just kind of sum up into like one elevator pitch of why it is. But I think it's just the best horror movie ever made at this point in my life specifically, too, because what I kind of gravitate towards with these kind of movies, right? Like, I feel like I'm not so much matured or anything like that. But again, I kind of gravitate towards these more heightened existential kind of movies and dread filled experiences rather than just you know, I appreciate a good jump scare. Don't get me wrong. I, there's an art to it. Just like there's an art to pop music. It is what it is. But, I mean, just the overall aesthetic, the tone, the acting, the themes played with, even just the length of time we're spent with these characters in this commune and the isolation and dread. It's just, yeah, it's just like to me encapsulates coming back to what I really kind of prefer in movies in general. It's like I said, this sort like survivalist kind of like, you know, fighting against all odds kind of nature type of thing. Whether you win or lose is not really the, the, the important factor with a lot of these movies, but I mean, clearly, depending on your outlook on what happens at the end of this movie, 
Did Danny win or did Danny lose? I don't know. But at the end of the day, it's the ultimate breakup pick. And yeah, I just absolutely love it. And I love revisiting it. Yeah. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is not correct to say that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, horror having something to say is is new. That's not the case. It's not the case. Horror has had something to say for basically as long as it's been around. But I think that even before horror as a movie genre existed, a lot of fairy tales are horror at their core. And a lot of them have a moral. And I think that this is a fairy tale and has a moral, but it also trusts you to parse the complicated discussion that it's having because it is an ambiguous ending and you have to go well did danny win did she lose by winning like what is the actual fallout of this and she is she is literally in a fairy tale she has a traumatic history and a bad boyfriend but she gets whisked away to a beautiful new land where her sweats are switched for beautiful clothes of flowers, and she finds a new family who wants her, and Pele is going to replace Christian. But through her journey, you also see how easy it is to be suckered into a bad thing in a moment of weakness. You think you've found your family, but what are they going to ask you to do? It seems like paradise until you have to eat the herring whole, tail first, like Danny is is forced to. And these purity-based paradises, which cannot exist, period, but even the hypothetical ones, demand so much. Incest, torture, ritual sex, ritual suicide. I think that this movie is a warning not to get suckered in by the glamorous appearances and negative feelings that you might be having. Because it does, I you know, at the very beginning, I talked about this de- desire to reconnect with people, right? And that a lot of people feel that digital interactions are not as real or as effective in feeling uh, companionship as face-to-face ones. And a lot of people take advantage of that, of that feeling of alienation from society. And very, very often, it's bad groups, neo-Nazis and stuff, that prey on these young people who feel alienated. And I also take this as a warning, not just to not get suckered in by glamorous appearances, but also that we need to support our our people who are feeling this way, that we need to have outlets for people who are at risk, right? That, that there needs to be a path back for people. There's, there's a, a quote that I saw from, from writer Jonathan Crary, who uh, he described these people as, even violence against a being one truly encounters is better than ghostly solicitude for faceless digits. And so for a lot of people, you know, any kind of attention is good attention. And and that can extend into reality as well when, when they are feeling that level of isolation and that level of alienation. And I think that Ari Aster does such a great complex warning about this subject that uh, I just, I think it's astounding. And for him to build on Hereditary in this way, to do something so absolutely different, but so great, and just have these uh, more subtle performances. Like I said, it's it's not that it's not 
great performances, but there's a lot more flash in the hereditary performances yes, than there exactly. are in the midsummer ones. It's just great. It's the best horror movie ever made. What more do you want from me? <laughs> exactly. What can we say, right? But I mean, it's like you said it. I mean, we kind of like harked on it right at the beginning of this, but they go for 12 months to go from like hereditary to this, where like, I mean, you know, we, we see a lot of these, you know, certain artists kind of sticking within their wheelhouse and have a certain aesthetic tone that kind of vibes from movie to movie. But I mean, I can see obviously like the fingerprints on the two movies, but I mean, just, just aesthetically two completely different looking movies, 12 months apart. It is, it is astounding that he was able to pull this off. Yeah, I totally agree. Thanks for coming on the show, Scott. This was so much fun. Please tell the people where they can find you, where they can listen to your pod, all that jazz. Sure, sure, yes. So me and my buddy John Fitz, he was my co-host on the Spooky Noofies. Uh, yeah, we had this experiment running over COVID and stuff, and we had a good run with our series at one point, but we had to go on a temporary hiatus, do some life circumstances and stuff. But for your listeners there, if you guys are interested and you like what you're kind of hearing today in terms of the assessment, you can go back in our archives. You can you know hear us wherever podcasts are available, Spotify, Apple, you know, Apple Podcasts, all that jazz. I think we've got like, you know, 30 episodes up there, something like that. And each episode, we'll, we dissect two different movies at a time. So there's a wealth of content there if you guys want to dive in. And yeah, you know, otherwise you can follow us on the Spooky Newfie, at the Spooky Newfies on Instagram. We've got a page there. And yeah, keep, keep noted for any updates. We're, we're looking to kind of relaunch the show soon. Hell yeah. Looking forward to that relaunch. Uh, as far as my plugs, you can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram at LittleHorrorPHL. Also on Blue Sky, although it doesn't really seem like that's taken off too much. So I don't know. That might just be a personal account, mostly, <laughs> as opposed to promoting the show stuff. But I don't know. You can follow, see what happens. We have a great new Patreon episode that I'm really excited about. If people are patrons, they can check this out. We did our first novel spotlight, which uh, typically we had only done video games or a short story previously. Uh, this time we covered Gideon the Ninth with Bailey Norton. And this is a really great book about lesbian romance and space necromancers. Really fun, great mystery. Recommend people check that out. And then also check out the episode. We uh, also, uh, the 22nd, December 22nd, is the live stream. The listener drive is going ahead full steam. We are up to four additional hours now. So if you want to make the stream 24 hours instead of now 12 hours, you know, just keep listening to the pod. Every thousand listeners adds an hour to the to the live stream. There's going to be games. There's going to be guests. There's going to be giveaways. We already have some of the very cool stuff coming in from former guests that they're going to be giving away as part of the live stream. So a lot of really cool stuff. Look forward to that on December 22nd. And yeah, just tell people about the show so that we can get those uh, those hours up. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. See ya.